Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. We are in the nerd zone today. Oh, I thought you were going to say hello, nerds. Hello, nerds. There you go. <laughs> We've got Tom from Nerds for Humanity on today, and uh, he's going to educate me about the data because he follows the data really closely and is... Uh, day day to day job makes him especially uh, nerdy when it comes to that stuff. So he's a kind of an expert at it. Uh, but first, I think we're just going to shoot the shit and catch up a little bit. Uh, Tom, why don't you uh, tell the listeners, especially people who maybe haven't seen your show yet or haven't heard one of your previous conversations with me on here yet. T- tell, tell everybody about yourself. Yeah, my name's Tom Leung. I am the host of the uh, Nerds for Humanity podcast. It's uh, mainly uh, a YouTube channel where I spend a lot of time talking about the state of the race and the kind of data and trends behind uh, current events. And uh, we started out as Nerds for Yang and then rebranded as Nerds for Humanity after the campaign suspended. But uh, it's a pleasure to be um, on the show today with you, Rio. It's a little weird because I've been on the show before and it's been three of us. Um, so that's, uh, you know, but I also understand these things evolve over time, and uh, I'm glad to hear that Corey will still be involved in, in some capacity with moving forward. Yeah, he's going to be involved in um, more or less the same capacity as you, I hope. Uh, so <laughs> Tom graciously agreed to be one of the recurring guest stars of the podcast, so he's going to be my go-to guy when it comes to talking data. Well, I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I, I, I am always up for talking about uh statistics and data and evidence. So uh, we'll be a good time. And I suspect we'll have a lot to talk about for the next um, potentially several years. <laughs> yeah, well, right now, of course, everybody is uh, a little anxious about the presidential race. Um, I don't know how closely you follow other races uh, like uh, um, the the Senate and, and, and the House and so forth. Um, but you as a data guy, I know that usually um, the party that wins the presidency also tends to do pretty well mm-hmm. on both of those fronts. Uh, but before we get into the data, um, uh, off air, you mentioned to me that you wanted to chat a little bit about like the evolution of this podcast and, and Corey's kept stepping down and stuff. So I'm going to let you interview me before I interview you. <laughs> yeah, well, so I know there's an official breakup episode. But I, I was just kind of curious for the the short version, like what happened? It seemed like you guys had this great uh, chemistry and, um, you know, you didn't agree on on everything, which I think what made the show interesting. Uh, I'm wondering why why make the change? Yeah, uh, well, ultimately, it was you know, Corey kind of forced my hand, but I think in the end, uh, he and I are both going to be even happier with what the future of this podcast is going to be. Um, so the long and short of it is when Corey and I started the podcast, we were very focused on working together toward our common goal of getting Andrew Yang elected. Mm -hmm. And as you know, even after Andrew Yang dropped out, we still wanted to work together on our common goal of, you know, getting Joe Biden, the guy that uh, Yang and Doris elected. And, um, you know, um, we, we were very much on the same page with that. And when we talked policy, uh, Corey and I were quite adept at finding consensus on policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to talk about I kept pushing 
him toward having episodes on more philosophical topics, uh, rhetorical topics, um, conversations about political strategy, just sort of broader conversations that Mm -hmm. he did mostly to humor me. And I think that those conversations were very productive um, in their own way, but they were emotionally taxing on Corey. So what we ended up deciding is that we are not breaking up. Uh, He is stepping down as a co-host, but we are, (laughs) the joke goes, remaining friends with benefits. (laughs) (laughs) Because I couldn't tell if that was a sincere laugh or not, but either way, it was delightful. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so he's going to be a recurring guest star and we're just going to talk policy and, um, and you know, I mean, he'll, he'll still be coming on, on the reg. And so people who love Corey will still get him. Plus you can go get him three days a week at his progressive talk show as well. Got it. Got it. You know, in a, in a way, your evolution of your relationship with Corey, sometimes I think mirrors some of the evolution of the Yang Gang post-campaign suspension where, you know, I think Andrew's active campaign um, papered over a lot of the uh, profound differences of opinion within the, the Yang Gang. It's such a diverse group. And then once it was suspended, we lost that kind of unifying force um, and you start to realize, wow, yes, we all agree that Yang should be president, but many of us came to that conclusion through very different assumptions and different priorities. And, um, you know, so I'm, I can't say I'm shocked that, uh, you know, the, this, this kind of, uh, evolution in, in your partnership with Corey has, had taken place because I think I've seen that, um, across the Yang gang, frankly. Yeah, and I I don't want to say that it has nothing to do with Yang dropping out. Um, but I think Corey and I would both agree. In fact, I know because I heard him say this in another interview. Um, uh, Joshua from New Progressive Voice interviewed us mm-hmm. <laughs> post breakup, and uh, and that was kind of our consensus is that Corey and I agreed that it wasn't so much the fact that Yang dropped out. It was just more that he wants to focus on the conversations about policy and and would prefer for me to have those other conversations with other people. So it just kind of made sense to do this natural, um, organic uh, evolution. Um, but you know, I, I appreciate what you said about how it mirrors the Yang Gang in a way, because that is true. I mean, Corey and I, that was the whole point of the podcast. We we came at mm-hmm. Yang from wildly different perspectives. Yep. Um, and so our reasons for supporting him are not the same. Uh, and that's also true, it turns out, of course, with lots of other uh, fellow Yang supporters. Not that the show is going to be super Yang focused going this forward necessarily, but we're, you know, we're talking about how it parallels the breakup of the Yang Gang. Um, and so the reason I said that we both think by both, I mean, me and Corey, we both think that the podcast is going to be even better going forward is because now I'm going to let his, uh, Corey's legacy, um, live on in the podcast, both in him being a regular guest, but also in me having the same kind of, you know, multi-stage ongoing conversations with other people seeking common ground. So there's just going to be more perspectives now, which is always a good thing, I think. I, I think that's true. Um, and I agree with you that it may not have been Yang suspending that was the root cause of you guys deciding to kind of change the format. What I would say is had Yang not suspended, I'm pretty sure the, the, 
the show would have gone on uh, as as is because it would have been, I would imagine, I think, or do you think uh, you guys would have ended up in the same place even if Yang were still, if you were like the nominee right now? That's interesting. Uh, I think it probably would have gone on longer yeah. um, in, its, in its old format. Uh, but no, I don't think it would have lasted forever because I was just really chomping at the bit to have conversations on topics that Corey was not comfortable talking about. <laughs> what, what's what's <laughs> an example so, of a hot topic that you would have loved to talk with Corey about today that maybe it wouldn't have worked? You know, wouldn't well, I mean, the one that we the, the one that brought this on, because um, this was fairly recent, mm-hmm. uh, was I wanted to have a conversation about similarities between what I was calling the alt left and the alt right. From a philosophical and political science perspective, mm-hmm. and how I see the you know radical elements and the bases of both parties as hostile to uh, classically liberal values, mm-hmm. um, and it's not even necessarily that Corey disagrees with me about that per se. He just didn't he didn't feel like it was as emotionally fulfilling for him, or as productive for him, or that he was maybe the the, the best person for me to talk about those issues with. So I think it was inevitable that uh, I would start having conversations without him eventually. Although, of course, I agree that the focus of our conversations wouldn't have moved to those topics yet uh, if we were still you know, really zeroed in on Yang. Yeah. How do you feel like that alt-left, alt-right kind of convergence uh, is going to affect this election? Do you think it's, it's going to be a, a factor or is it more of a long-term trend that you're kind of observing? Well, wow, that's a really good question. And it's a great segue into the data conversation. Uh, I would push the question back on you, but first I will answer. Um, I think that the alt-right right now is clearly ascendant in the Republican Party. I consider that a very, very dangerous reality. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why, even as a conservative, I would like to see the Republicans lose this one election and lose big. Mm-hmm. Is I, I think that, you know, parties and, and frankly, the Democrats are not blameless in this. Um, when push comes to shove, parties tend to side with their own a lot. And they tend to, um, well, it's true, of course, that there are voters in the bases of both parties who are as critical of the party establishment as you would want, right? Perhaps even too critical in some cases. The actual powers that be within the parties do tend to downplay the errors and mistakes and oversteps of people in their own party and to exaggerate those of the other party. Now, that said, I'm not saying that there is an equivalence, right? Obviously, the Republican Party is in a much worse state in terms of its betrayal of, you know, its its traditional values of late than the, the DNC is. That's undeniable. And so it seems to me that in, the, in with either party, if it goes down a road that is truly harmful to society, um, it's incumbent upon us as voters to punish the party for that so that it learns its lesson. I think that if if Trump loses big and the GOP loses, continues to lose in places like, uh, you know, um, suburbs, which used to be pretty good GOP strongholds. They continue to lose more and more power in the House and maybe even the Senate as states like Texas start to move blue. The party, the GOP will eventually learn that its current strategy of just pandering to its most radical base is not going to work. And that's 
really what it takes for a party to learn a lesson until until it gets uh, walloped at the ballot box. It's going to continue to just uh, defend whatever its leadership does. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you that if Trump loses by just a nose, it will only um, empower that kind of uh, alt-right kind of rebel <laughs> MAGA camp within the Republican Party. Whereas if they if he really um, loses in a landslide, I think there is a chance that the Republican Party can reassess and really um, potentially pivot into a new direction that's way more um, pra- practical and, and inclusive and still conservative, um, perhaps more conservative than Trump's policies are because they're more kind of populist than anything else. Um, so I, I, I kind of hope there's a landslide for both those reasons. One, because I, I really feel like Trump in a second term would be worse than his COVID response. And secondly, because as a, a citizen, I don't like the idea of one party being so weak. And right now that Republican Party is very, very weak and kind of rudderless. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite sad to see because we don't want um, our votes being taken for granted by the Democratic Party either. Right, precisely. I, until we have ranked choice voting, like it or not, we have a two-party system, especially at the national level. And when one party, as such as the GOP, has given up on even attempting to broaden its coalition, which would moderate it and would would make its policy positions better, and as you said, better in value, uh, better uh, embody conservative values. Um, when it's given up on that and instead it chooses this strategy of doubling and tripling down on a handful of states where it can still eke out an electoral victory, that's very bad for democracy. And it's why the party is okay with turning a blind eye to Trump blatantly cheating, frankly, Mm -hmm. because if they can get away with that, then they don't have to actually reevaluate their strategy and and consider adopting policies that more Americans actually want. What do you think is going to happen to this um, very large block of the Republican Party, this this pro-Trump kind of alt-right component that it's not like even if the Republicans get their butts kicked uh, in November, that group of aggrieved generally um, white, non-college educated, um, you know, South and and Midwest voters, like they're still going to have a lot of uh, concerns and they're, they're going to want their voice heard. Do you think the new, like the Republican 2.0 party will find a place for them? Or do you think they're going to have to either come up with their own party or maybe even uh, occupy part of the Democratic Party? Like, where will those Trump voters go, you think? Well, this is not a politically correct or particularly popular opinion. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I honestly think that the Republican Party needs to forget about those people. Um, I think that they were forgotten for a reason. Um, I, th- Trump has proven that they have bad values that they don't understand, let alone appreciate the values of democracy and the rule of law and the Constitution that 
have made our society possible. They seem to be selfish and they seem willing to blow up civilization and ruin it for everybody else because they are filled with hate and resentment. Um, and Trump has been stoking that. Now, that said, I don't think that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party should completely give up on that whole demographic long term. But I think the Trump voters need to learn a lesson, too. They need to learn that when you back a demagogue traitor, that there is a social cost to that. Furthermore, I think that the Republican Party, frankly, if it's going to remain a party of free enterprise and capitalism, needs to learn how to win on the coasts because that's actually where the money's being made today. They can't be the party of free enterprise and capitalism if they're dependent electorally upon working class voters in deindustrializing states. That's just impossible. So I, I think what the GOP needs to do is it needs to return to fiscal conservatism and it needs to be more moderate on social issues so that it's not alienating fiscal conservatives on the coasts. That's what I would recommend they learn. Yeah, um, I, I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, I certainly do not endorse any of the hateful kind of resentment and um, fixation on grievance and, you know, owning the libs kind of vibe that you get from a lot of the, the Trump voters. On the other hand, I am empathetic to their uh, what I think is underlying plight, which is a very poor economic outlook and a feeling of um, rapid cultural change where they're no longer the clearly dominant um, kind of cultural group. And I, I just can't see that them kind of, um, you know, gently exiting the stage and, and being quiet. I, I suspect that they will um, be a material voting block that either party will need to figure out how to, uh, you know, find a partnership with, uh, because if if the other party does, like if the Democrats find a way to win over these Trump voters, uh, or vice versa, I mean that's a that's a meaningful. They may not be the largest demographic group, but it's a big, probably what twenty thirty percent of the country. Um, do you think there's a way to uh, kind of? partner and, and find a win-win with these with these voters? Because I, I feel like deep down inside, they all want the same thing. They want to feel valued. They want to take care of their kids. They want they want to have a future. Uh, unfortunately, they think the way to do that is to, you know, um, build a wall and, and blame other countries. But um, ultimately, their core needs are not, not that different from, from yours and mine. Yeah, yeah, completely agreed. Um, obviously, that was part of Andrew Yang's appeal mm -hmm. is that he was offering, I see him as somebody who was attracting the attention of populists on both the quote alt left and alt right. Right. Mm -hmm. So attracting, he attracted his coalition. It seems to me was made up of something like 40% Trump voters, about 40% hardcore radical Bernie Sanders voters. Um, and then maybe 20% of like normal mainstream Democrats. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and some never Trumpers like myself. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, the, 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 the problem is he succeeded at attracting those people, but he didn't succeed at de-radicalizing them. He might have he, his plan for de-radicalization seemed to be that once they hear about these new ideas, you know, they'll really commit to that vision. But instead, what happened is 
a lot of these people who are inclined towards cynicism and apathy were very instantly disillusioned as soon as Yang dropped out, right? Whereas you and I knew that he was a long shot all along and that his real goal was just to broaden the conversation and move the Democratic Party in that direction. So the long and short of it is I believe that if the, to the extent that the Democratic Party adopts Yang's approach, um, they're not going to win over all of the Trump voters, but they will win over enough of them in order for them to be able to reliably win um, certainly those uh, those uh, states, those swing states that that Trump that helped Trump barely eke out a victory last time around. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that all unfolds. I mean, I remember when we would talk about Yang's campaign being a um, unique one in that it was able to attract Trump voters, and it was all upside when the campaign was active. But now that the campaign suspended, I think as a as a sort of community, we are struggling to um, to kind of stay together because, you know, I remember some folks complaining about, oh, the, those neo libs. And I was thinking to myself, well, shit, I don't know, like I believe in free markets like you could call me a neo lib, <laughs> but I'm I'm a big you know supporter of Yang. And uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that we can all kind of reunite. I think this whole DNC speaking thing was a great opportunity to kind of put down or lay down our arms about, you know, why Biden is either the best uh, option or, or a terrible option and uh, and just focus on getting Yang, you know, uh, a spot in the in the convention. I think uh, that showed you that moment of unity within the Yang gang that we used to enjoy every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I've, I've, I've pretty much given up on the Yang gang at this point, And I even found all of that a bit annoying because, you know, I mean, Yang didn't win a single delegate. Like I love him and I want him to speak and I'm glad that he's going to be speaking. But to me, that was just more toxic rage against the machine, like not actually particularly productive behavior coming from a very toxic group of voters. That's interesting. I I hear you that, look, the guy um, got a few percent, uh, I guess 5% in first allocation in Iowa and less than that in New Hampshire. So you could argue like, well, why why should he be entitled to a spot? I would also say that in today's world where um, no one was talking about direct cash relief to people in times of crisis and... um, no one is, uh, of all the other primary candidates, I don't think anybody has been as active after they suspended in terms of helping people as, as Yang has been. And then the other piece being, you know, the first Asian American man to make it into the you know top six in a major presidential primary is a historic thing. Um, so I, I did feel like, he should absolutely be. I mean, it's, it's one of 36 speakers and now 37. So it wasn't like we're saying he needs to be like one of three, but come on. Like he's also um, representing a voice uh, around automation and basic income and and kind of data driven policy decision making that I don't think anybody else brought to the table. So I was quite dis- disappointed, let's say, that he wasn't uh, included and I'm glad that he is now. And I think that was the right call that the party made. And 
Um, hopefully he'll make the most of his, uh, his two minutes. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, obviously I was disappointed too, because I do, as I said, I want to see the Democratic Party adopt more of his approach to policy and rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is true, but I was disappointed and not surprised, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's yeah. it's this yeah. sense of entitlement, this idea that if we don't get everything we want now, then we're just going to give up on the whole system and the DNC is totally corrupt and it was stolen and all those black voters who voted for Joe Biden in South Carolina were just brainwashed by the mainstream media, which is kind of a racist narrative if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm just kind of over all that stuff. But I am still very pro-humanity first. And needless to say, if Andrew Yang runs again, I will 100% be voting for him. I'm just hoping that he, you know, he's a newbie to politics. So I'm hoping he learned some lessons about the downside of trying to build a movement made up of nothing but people who don't vote and who don't understand politics. Yeah, I mean, the reality is this could be literally a 20, 30 year story. <laughs> like you, you don't get uh, the sort of civil rights movement in one election. You don't get social security in one election. These things take time. And uh, I agree with you that what, if we don't get everything right away, it doesn't mean that the next choice is to just blow up the whole system um, because there are, there are 300 million people that depend on a functioning government and um, just handing the keys over to, in this case, uh, you know, Donald Trump and Jared and Ivanka and Navarro and all these just snakes. It's, it's, um, it's terrifying. And, and I just, I'm so concerned about um Donald's state of mind and his ability to use good judgment and focus on the right thing for the country. It's never been more clear than this COVID thing. I mean, he's completely botched it and he, he cannot do anything but blame it on China, blame it on democratic uh, mayors. When at the end of the day, like this is a national emergency and and really the buck stops with him and and he's just completely effed it up yeah yeah no i mean trump is as they say all bark and no bite that's the way his entire uh life has been lived his whole and his political career is very short-lived and it started with racist birtherism but his his business career before that was that of a a spoiled kid who inherited money and and cheated on his taxes committed literal fraud um which is a federal crime um in order to do so and as too often happens that our system got away with it because he was you know rich and connected um although in the long term it looks like you know his uh, notoriety might come back to bite him <laughs> but but what makes trump dangerous is his enablers it's the people who believe his lies the people who vote for him the people who um who lie for him on tv every day the republican politicians who pretend not to notice his assaults upon democracy trump truly is just a symptom of the problem as yang said and the problem is partially related to the fact that a lot of people are struggling in this country. But the way I look at it, the, he's a symptom of the fact that too many Americans take what is good about our society for granted, frankly, right? I mean, it's not it's not like we are less democratic than we used to be. Our uh, The trajectory of American history has been moving more and more toward 
a more truly democratic system. When we started, the majority of people in the country were illiterate, and they wouldn't have been able to understand the ideas um, that inspired the comparatively more educated upper class um, founders who were inspired by, you know, Greece and and Rome um, and very high ideals and attempt attempt to um, radically remake human civilization. And they did. And we were so successful at it that, you know, the developed world copied us and in many ways did it better than us because they were able to learn from our mistakes. So they had that advantage going for, for them. Right. But I mean, we went from having a situation where the average person couldn't read and therefore would have been worse than useless in the democratic process and could not vote. Only white landowning men could vote. So basically the upper middle class and above. Um, and we've moved from that to a situation where everybody can vote regardless of class, sex, race, etc. Is it perfect? No. But, you know, it's easier to blow things up, break things than it is to fix them. And when people start taking what's good about society for granted and they just want to pitch a fit like a, t- a toddler and start breaking stuff, that is how civilizations die. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, I think we it's helpful to zoom out from time to time and uh, be grateful for the amazing kind of country and progress that we've made over the years, um, certainly over the decades. I, I would say I've never in my uh, personal recollection ever had an election where I was like, gee, I hope my vote gets counted. And, you know, as someone who plans on mailing in my ballot and not kind of um, going to a crowded polling station or standing online for many hours, like I feel like this is this is just so tragic that we're actually having a debate about whether the U.S. Postal Service should have enough resources to distribute and collect uh, people's votes. Uh, during a, a a pandemic, like how is this even a point of contention? Um, and so, yes, I agree with you that uh, the, the sky is not falling. But I would also say, like this guy, I mean, there's so many firsts. Like, I would never have thought we'd have a world where our president would have even a conversation with the leader of another country, and in the same paragraph, talk about. Uh, you know, defense aid for that country and then access to their political opponents like email server. Like, how is that even um, a thing? And, and so, you know, on and on and on and like just like refusing to uh, support, um, you know, common mitigation efforts like masks, like these are not very wild, controversial things, and yet somehow we're in a state where our our leader, uh, the most powerful elected leader in the world, is advocating for for these things and 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 influencing hundreds, at least a hundred million people, if you say about a third of the country, to believe that the media is the enemy of the people, that you know nothing you you kind of see with your your eyes is true and it's just it's 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 disturbing to me i i agree it's not like the world's going to end tomorrow but i don't remember a leader this bad in a long time oh yeah no i i completely agree that's that's really is my concern i it's not 
it's not that I don't see the threat of Trump. It's that I'm concerned that the reason people are willing to tolerate that or even welcome it, I mean, blatant attacks upon the democratic process, blatant, like just fully admitting on television that you are intentionally trying to prevent people's votes from being counted because of some absurd conspiracy theory about how mail-in votes aren't safe. Meanwhile, he's voting himself by mail, right? So, I mean, it's just... The, the reason people are willing to tolerate this is is because of what I said. They're taking it for granted. If they think that things are so bad that it couldn't be worse under a totalitarian dictatorship or a banana republic, they're, they know nothing about history. They're crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I do, I do. I mean, I think that this came up most uh, prominently within the Yang Yang during that whole Dark Horse Duo Unity 2020 thing. And, um, you know, I'm glad. I I think that has kind of petered out a little bit. I see, um, you know, uh, Eric Weinstein, I think he's still pushing it, but it's a very um, dangerous, that was a dangerous path that we were being led down, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. And so we're about halfway through uh, the time that we have for this conversation. So it seems like a good segue into the data. Mm -hmm. That was actually going to be my big question for you. Um, So kind of jumping off, first of all, give our listeners uh, a rundown of your take on the the overall polling situation. National polls, how Biden is doing against Trump in swing states, um, how he's doing remarkably well in red states. Um, but of course, we're still fairly early in the process, and there's a lot of room for those numbers to change. And then I'd like to get into your your opinion um, based on, uh, you know, your informed opinion based on paying close attention to the data about like what role Unity 2020 and Kanye West's run and that and uh, the the Green Party and so forth might might play in in that the real outcome. Sure. Well, if you look at the national polling data, um, there have been hundreds of polls putting Trump uh, versus Biden, frankly, even before (laughs) Biden became the uh, presumptive nominee. And the last time that Trump um, actually came ahead of Biden in a national poll was in um, February of this year, where he was uh, plus four. And then before that, it was be uh, December. So literally out of like probably the last two, uh, call it 150 national polls, he's he's beaten Biden a total of maybe two times. And that was um, generally before the uh, coronavirus. And so if you believe the national polls, which I think are generally fairly predictive. I know some people listening may say, oh, what, you know, wasn't Hillary supposed to win in a landslide? And just as a reminder, she was only up by three points, according to the polls. Um, people, I think, conflate the uh, the probability of winning of 70% with the prediction of her winning by 70%. She was supposed to win by 3%. She, of course, ended up did win the um, popular vote, but just not the Electoral College. In this case, you have Biden with a much stronger lead over Trump than Hillary ever had at the national level. And that appears to be uh, at a minimum holding, if not um, actually increasing a little bit. So it seems like as Trump kind of um, struggles with the coronavirus, with the uh, recession, 
And um, with all of the um, kind of polarization, it seems like he's doing a great job uh, holding on to that core base of about maybe 30, uh, 35% of the population, but he's really struggling to get anything beyond that. Now, when you look at the state level, it's really incredible that um, if you look at, say, betting odds for given states, uh, most gamblers, based on the financial odds they're offering, are expecting uh, Trump to lose in Florida. They're expecting him to um, just by a nose lose in North Carolina, and they're expecting um, him to lose in Arizona, um, Wisconsin. These are um, key states that he he needs to win, and that he's not uh, doesn't look like he will. And you see, where is he strongest? Uh, oh, by the way, there's actually a 30% chance, according to the betting odds, that Texas could potentially go for Biden, which is just uh, enormously nuts. Um, so in summary, I would say at the national level, it's almost no contest. Like it's all, for sure, we would expect unless something extraordinary happens, which is very possible in the next, you know, 80 something days. Um that Biden's going to win the popular vote, and he will also um, likely win the electoral vote, potentially with well over 300 electoral votes. He only needs 270. So it could be a landslide. Um, And I think, to me, the question isn't, will Biden win? I think he will likely win. I think the harder question is, how will the country heal on November 4th? And will we have a peaceful transition of power uh, after um, all of the votes are counted, assuming they are counted? I mean, that is a little bit of an asterisk where if you assume that many Democrats are taking the corona stuff seriously, more seriously, they might be more likely to do mail-in voting. And if the Postal Service is is accurate in its concerns that 46 states, they may not be able to get all the ballots returned in time, then that's a big kind of wild card. And uh, I remember when Bush beat Gore and there was, uh, you know, all that kind of drama in Florida with the hanging Chad, this, this could be um, even, it would make that look like a kind of a minor disagreement. So uh, in short, Voters seem to overwhelmingly prefer uh, the Biden-Harris ticket. The question is, like, will that necessarily um, play out in how the actual political events unfold if, let's say, Trump declares that the election was invalid, that it was um, rife with fraud, or that, um, you know, it was just unclear what the outcome was, which is why I think we need a landslide. And if it's too close, it gives him enough wiggle room to maybe try and, uh, and cause some trouble. Yeah. Yep. That, that's uh, my takeaway as well. Um, and I really appreciate the t- detailed breakdown there. Um, I, I think what's important for people to understand is that there is 
no such thing as a safe state in terms of whether or not you can waste your vote on Unity 2020 or the Green Party or the Libertarian Party or something like that. And the reason I say that is because of what you exactly what you said there, that Trump, I mean, it's not an if he says that it was invalid. He's already declared in advance that it will be invalid and that it's the most fraud we've ever had, right? So you can be absolutely certain that if he loses, he will say that it was invalid and try to steal the election, 100%. I mean, he even claimed that it was invalid when he won, (laughs) remember? He was the winner. And he still said, oh, I also won the popular vote, except for three million illegal people voted. Um, you know, which there was absolutely no evidence for and his own administration failed to find evidence for. So, of course, he's going to do that. Right. And so it's not there is no safe state because one, Biden is doing surprisingly well in red states, as you said. Mm-hmm. So even if you live in a red state and you want to send a message to the evil DNC, you know, frankly, vote for Joe Biden because your state could actually go for Biden. So do it. Um, Of course, in swing states, that goes without saying. Um, And then also in blue states, because I think it's important that Trump loses. I think it's important for the country. I think it's important for the Republican Party to learn its lesson um, that Trump loses in an embarrassing way. He needs to lose the popular vote by as wide a margin as humanly possible. And he needs to also lose in an electoral landslide. Um, And, you know, as you know, uh, Tom, when Ronald Reagan won in a huge electoral landslide, that had an enormous multi-generational impact on American politics mm-hmm. because the Democratic Party learned a lot of lessons about how you can't just pander to the base and you really need to take the concerns of independent and more conservative voters seriously, right? Mm-hmm. This, is, uh, this is something that the, the GOP needs to learn today. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true in that, in a weird way, if you are a Republican and you care deeply about your party um, pivoting away from this kind of toxic Trump era, uh, it's in the GOP's interest, in a weird way, for the Democrats to have a landslide uh, this year, because otherwise you're signing up for another who knows, 10 years of Trumpism within the GOP. And, um, you know, I think that would be really toxic. I also think that um, I'm less concerned about whether Trump will like literally vacate the premises. I I think if he loses, he will, he will, you know, maybe um, he won't like it, but he'll leave literally. But I think if he, if he loses by a close enough margin he will start talking about Biden's presidency as a fake presidency, as a deep state rigged presidency. Therefore, we should block any action by this um, you know, illegitimate administration um, every step of the way. And the problem is that we as a country, even after Trump goes back to Mar-a-Lago or wherever he hangs out, um, we have a lot of problems that we're going to need to fix. We're going to have a recession. We're going to have foreign policy challenges. We're going to have healthcare challenges. We're going to need a functioning government. And if we're in even worse gridlock because a third of the congressmen 
uh, are still in this kind of Trump trans and they are going to uh, block everything they can and say, you know, our number one priority is an unsuccessful Biden presidency. Uh, we as a country are going to suffer. So I, I totally agree. Like I live in California. I am going to absolutely vote uh, because I need to rack up that popular vote and have that mandate be crystal clear that um, A, that the Biden administration has the green light to kind of get us back on track and make some make some changes. But also, to your point, that the GOP needs to, um, you know, have the wake up call that that we thought they got when Romney lost and really figure out how they can expand their their support and speak to the whole country and not just, you know, a slice of the of the aggrieved. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, if you look at it, Trumpism is already harming the GOP. And yeah. the evidence for that is clear. So even if you're just a partisan and you're not worried about the fact that the Republican Party has betrayed traditional values that it supposedly stands for, right? Even if you're just worried about the party's long-term electoral standing, um, Trumpism is, is, is ruining the brand of the GOP in key areas. Um, I mean, Orange County went for the Democrats, mm. right? In 2018. That's very unusual, right? And But in, in that election, it was extremely common that conservative, sort of affluent, suburban-type communities, which traditionally vote Republican more often than not, overwhelmingly have given up on the Republican Party brand. And that's because it's associated with this horrible person who turns off educated people everywhere, frankly. Um, I mean, he's explicitly anti-intellectual. Uh, he he embodies values that are very offensive, especially to moms in this country mm-hmm. who are worried about the um, example that he sets for their children, right? So it's just, it really already is hurting the GOP. So like, as long as the GOP is going down the Trumpism road, it's never going to have a majority in the House again, yeah. right? Yeah. And you can't pass anything. Um, in this country without having at least a small majority in the house. Uh, so that's just not the viable thing, even from a purely partisan perspective. Another piece of evidence for it is that nationally speaking, um, college educated white voters used to be reliably Republican demographic, and now they're moving more toward the, the DNC as well. So that's also a direct consequence of Trumpism. So Trump is more popular than previous Republican presidents among non-college educated whites, but that has very limited dem- demographic uh, advantages long term. I I tend to agree with you. And I would also say, I, I know some people listening may think, oh, how self-serving, like the, the, these guys that are uh, backing Biden want want you know more Republicans to support Biden. Um, remember that be when Reagan um, had his his landslide, it probably was the genesis of the Clinton uh, the Bill Clinton years. And whether or not like you like Clinton's personal decisions or not, he he did preside over a very prosperous time for the country. Um, and I think that was because 
uh, of the Democratic Party getting their ass kicked that they needed this like, you know, this third way, this Democratic Leadership Committee or whatever they were called. And Bill Clinton was kind of a representative of that. So you could imagine if Trump gets his ass kicked in November, there could be an exciting new future for the Republican Party. And, um, you know, who will be the leader of that Republican 2.0 party? I don't know, but I'm, I would be excited to, to learn it. And I think it will be uh, it'll keep the Democrats on their toes as well. Right. No, exactly. And as you said, it's very important in a democracy that you don't have one party rule. I don't want one party rule. I want the GOP to stop trying to cheat and stop undermining democracy and the rule of law and the Constitution and go back to the proper American way of trying to win honestly by persuading Americans with an honest to God argument. Right. Um, And that would only be a good thing for the country. And once uh, once Trumpism has been soundly rejected, the GOP can start to try to pay attention to, hey, maybe we need to do better on in blue states than we've been doing in the past. Maybe we should moderate on social issues a little bit. Maybe this fascism and theocracy thing isn't actually all that popular um, in enough places in America. And, and, And it would be good for both parties Uh, to have some real competition between genuinely, honest-to-God, good alternatives. Totally agree. And you got to wonder, like, what does it say when the vast majority of people with a college education have such strong opinions about about Trump in in the negative? Like, I don't want to... I'm not saying that college educated voters are are you know by definition more informed but you would hope that uh both parties are drawing a similar number of supporters from educated folks and that's just not what we're seeing what we're seeing is that trump's support is almost entirely from non uh college educated voters and And so what is it? It's either one of two things like these college educated voters are completely idiots and don't know what the hell is going on or they they're onto something and they think that this man is very dangerous. And so I I I I yearn for the day when Republicans and Democrats are competing, you know, head to head um, for every college educated vote. And they're not just taking any group for granted. And it's, it's just sad that the GOP is now um, not the party of, of uh, you know, highly educated people. I, I would think that that's a good thing, that you would want some of those people to, to support your candidate. Oh, especially if you're trying to be the party of capitalism. Yeah. You can't, you can't be the party of capitalism if you, if you don't have any input from the people who actually own capital and run businesses and are successful and are the drivers of economic growth in this country, frankly. I totally, yeah. I think, I think your point about, hey, you know, people talk smack about um, the coastal uh, states, you know, all those terrible people in New York and, and California, but it, there are a lot of really powerful businesses that um, advance America's interests that are led by, you know, very capable people in those quote unquote liberal coastal states. And I don't know that you want to just write those folks off there. You know, it's just um, if you're the pro capitalism, pro free enterprise party, 
you can't have all your support from states that uh, don't have as much successful free enterprises. Yeah, from states that are taking more in federal tax benefits than they're contributing in federal taxes. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, I I have some, um, actually, a, a number of my family members are, are in this MAGA world, and they, they're very loyal to the president. And they they love to talk about, um, you know, oh, we're not socialists and da da da. But I don't, and I've tried, they do not run the numbers and they do not look at the fact that there are donor states and there are recipient states. And these states that you want to demonize as these Democrat run states, socialist states, they're the ones that are pouring money into the federal coffers and then redistribute, I hate to use the word, redistributing that to a bunch of uh, lower uh, economic growth uh, red states, frankly. And this is just, um, you know, if you want to live by your whole free market thing, like, you, do you really want to go there? Because Social Security, Medicare are all instances where um, a lot of these blue states are paying for a lot of red state benefits, frankly. Yeah, of course. You're 100% right about that. And that kind of is the point, is that as long as the alt-right continues to be ascendant in the GOP, the U.S. doesn't have a real free market right-wing party. I mean, if anything, the democratic establishment at this point is to the right of the alt-right, certainly on trade and foreign policy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, basically, Biden, in a lot of ways is kind of like a, a, a late 80s, early 90s Republican. Um, and Trump is almost like this crazy kind of nativist, I don't know, like McGovern. I, I, he's just a strange bird. And all of these labels, like they've, they've kind of been twisted around because while the uh, Republican Party loves to kind of demonize anything that you know has any socialist kind of influence, it's still also the the administration that says we should never touch Medicare or Social Security or entitlements. Um, so, like, you you got to pick a lane. You you can't have it both ways. Yeah, one hundred percent. I the way I think about it is that this this debate about whether or not to continue Trumpism is really a debate about the soul of this country. Um, I mean, to sound exactly like Joe Biden's best ads, frankly. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is about that. It's do we want to have a country where we build a future based on our shared values as Americans or do we want a future where we're at war with one another? Do we do we want unity or do we want division? And, you know, whatever you think about Joe Biden as a person individually or his policies, it's hard to deny that he is somebody who has a history of bipartisanship. He has a history. I mean, he has he has <laughs> like Lindsey Graham loves the guy. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's because Biden has a reputation of being a person who actually believes in the democratic process, which involves working with the other side of the aisle sometimes. Um, and even and within his own party, he's also made giant strides creating consensus policy positions with Bernie Sanders to try to thread the needle between uh, conservative and progressive values in the Democratic coalition. 
So it really is unity or division. And and the strategy of division doesn't just result in the GOP um, being abandoned by college-educated voters. It also makes the racial divide in this country that much worse, which is where a lot of this um, civil unrest is coming from. And I don't believe that crime and rioting is ever justified. Obviously, I totally support uh, peaceful protests. But, you know, like there would be less crime in a Biden world because he wouldn't be intentionally stoking racial divisions the way Trump is. It's not you want to talk about something that's unhealthy for democracy. It's unhealthy that you have one party that 90 percent of black people vote for and another party that 5 percent of black people vote for. That's not good. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I think the if you play this game out and you look at the demographics of this country, uh, what what whether you think it's the best thing ever or the most terrible thing ever, it is for sure a multicultural, multi-race country, and it will become more so over the next few decades. And so, if your whole party platform is around protecting um, the interests of just one race, like that is just not going to be an effective uh, leadership strategy. Like that's just not going to result in you winning elections or getting anything done. So I think there's just like the reality of demographics that people are uncomfortable with. I know some people listening might be thinking like, well, but that's because we have too much immigration. If you stopped all immigration today, you're you're not suddenly going to become, you know, a 60-70% white country. Like that's just not that those those days are over. We 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 know what the trends are and and so uh the, I I would argue the Republican Party needs to come up with a vision that is inclusive of uh more than than one ethnic group and if they don't um they're going to lose. And I think this might, this 2016 election may have been the last one where a Republican can win with sort of the politics of, uh, of subtraction. Right. And, and it's just, uh, um, just, just what the numbers are, are reflecting. Yeah, totally. I mean, and it's helpful to make a distinction between legal and illegal immigration. Um, right. The way I think about it is the the traditional right wing position has always been in favor of legal immigration because it's actually, however you look at it, an extremely good thing for the economy. Legal mm-hmm. immigration, right? Sure. Legal immigrants actually, on average, pay more in taxes and are more successful than native born Americans. Illegal immigrants is a, is a whole other ballgame, of course. Right. But the, the fact is the number one way to reduce illegal immigration is to encourage legal immigration. And Trump's nativist strategy is against illegal, excuse me, is not just against illegal immigration. It's also against legal immigration. And that's just, that's not right wing or conservative at all. That's, that's just national nonsense. Yeah, and then you know, speaking of the the country of capitalism and free enterprise, if if your companies are unable to hire um, the best talent that the world has, uh, that you know fundamentally is one of the things that that did make uh, the American economy so great uh, in the middle of the twentieth century is that we were able to attract the best talent from around the world. And they end up working at IBM and GM and GE and, you know, starting amazing companies. Um, 
So I, I, it's just a very strange thing to have a Republican president that's uh, anti-immigration of any kind. <laughs> and I, I know he's he's now talking about merit-based immigration, and that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And you know, I, I could see myself being supportive of of some of those elements, but um, you know, there's the policy Trump, and then there's also the the kind of personality and culture and tone of Trump. And the problem is that latter side of him influences voters who then put more extreme kind of Trumpist congressmen into D.C. and then result in, you know, this gridlock. Um, and, and you get these congressional representatives like that wrestling coach guy, Jim Jordan or whatever, and they're just nuts and they, they we can't get anything done. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, um, the populist narrative about gridlock is that it's all because of the evil elite. So the truth of the matter is the reason gridlock happens is because people on one or the or both sides are not willing to work with the other side. That's what really causes gridlock. More radically um, extreme people in Congress always leads to more gridlock, period. Um, we have to start wrapping up because I, I know you said you only had about an hour to talk today uh, and you're a busy guy. Um, but I just wanted to go over a couple more things real quick. So for people who, um, doubt what I said about Trump's opposition to legal immigration, one piece of evidence you can see for that is, uh, look back at the, when, um, negotiations were going on for building the wall. Um, so during the first two years of his term, um, the Republicans had control of the house and the Senate and they never built the wall. So that says something right there. Then once uh, the Democrats took over the House, Trump suddenly started trying to build the wall for real and because now he could blame the fact that it wasn't getting done on the Democrats. But look at the negotiations that were going on. Um, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats were prepared to build that wall and to fund that wall, which is a lot of money and it's kind of a dumb idea, frankly. But they were prepared to do it in exchange for Trump also reforming the legal immigration system so that it's a little bit easier for people to immigrate legally. And I don't think people realize how, how strict we really are about that. All, if, if he was willing, if he really wanted more legal immigration, right, and less illegal immigration, he would have agreed to that deal. But he didn't because it's more beneficial to him politically to blame the Democrats for the wall not getting built rather than to actually govern in a practical way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think the other thing that is um, disturbing is that if if he really cared that much about illegal immigration, he would have cracked down on employers who are... Um, <laughs> then he'd have to crack down on himself. Well, true, yeah. Who are often taking advantage of lower cost labor from undocumented wor workers and benefiting from it. Um, but I think he chose to go for the wall because it's easy to understand. It makes people feel strong. And it allows the, the reality, which is that we as American consumers are... Uh, our, our purchasing power is subsidized by undocumented workers and things would be way more expensive if, uh, if we were really serious about requiring full documentation for all workers. And we as a government, um, you know, are choosing not to strictly enforce it. Like from time to time, you see a few meat processing plants and this and that. But, you know, I think the reality is that Trump 
uh, gets donations from a lot of business owners and a lot of industry that um, have benefited from this kind of silent workforce uh, that uh, doesn't have any rights and, and doesn't get any kind of representation and and, uh, and will work for way less than uh, than documented workers. So it's a it, it, the whole Trump administration is a a story of contradictions and it's 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 even if you ag- agree with where he wants to go then you don't agree with how he's doing it because it doesn't make any sense and the only thing that makes sense is that he pushes things that help him take credit for anything that's good to deflect accountability on the democrats for anything that's bad or china or you know uh, france or wherever uh, but not Russia for some reason. And then, um, you know, helps them get reelected. But, you know, there used to be a time when Republicans talked about country first. And uh, I hope we can get back to that where character matters. Um, but for the time being, um, we really need to get rid of this guy. He's he's a he's a cancer. Yeah, I mean, the, really quickly, the way I think of it is there are basically two possible outcomes of Trumpism. So if Trump does get reelected, uh, which hopefully will not happen, um, either the GOP brand will be totally eroded um, and they will lose even even more uh, control of Congress as a consequence of that um, and will lose for a long, 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 long time uh, due to bad branding. Um, or uh, Trump will and his cronies will succeed at turning us into a Russia style banana republic um, and end democracy itself in America so that we're only a democracy in theory, but not in practice, which is how democracies die in the 21st century. And neither of those things are good. There is no good, there's no positive outcome available if Trump's reelected. Um, okay, so I have one last data question for you, Tom, and then I'm going to I'm gonna uh, let you say your goodbyes. Um, so we talked about the, the polls nationally and in swing states and so forth between Biden uh, and Trump, what do you think the role of third parties or Unity 2020 votes might or might not play in, in terms of the Electoral College? Because, of course, we know in 2016, a couple of the the state, the swing states where Trump eked out an electoral victory were you could you could you could have had a totally different outcome if, for example, people who voted for the Green Party had voted for Clinton instead. So how worried are you about that and why or why not? Uh I think the good news is I suspect most people are so shocked and disappointed in Trump that they are may they may not love it, but they will when the time comes, um, you know, pull the lever uh, figuratively for 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 Biden Um, in a world where a unity 2020 or libertarian or green actually does really unexpectedly well. Let's say people uh, buy the argument that, oh, um, it's okay, like everyone in a blue state just vote for uh, the Green Party or vote for the Libertarian or some other, or write in some name, even Andrew Yang's. And if if enough people did that, I think the risk is that you just end up um, blurring the Biden victory and creating an opening for Trump to sow the seeds of, um, you know, illegitimacy of the Biden win and why, you know, this was a rigged thing and the deep state screwed the Trump people and yada, yada. So I think uh, in theory, if enough people go with these third parties, it could actually 
um, make it very hard for the Biden uh, uh, team to get anything done in the next four years. And again, we're going to be in a recession. We're still going to be in a global pandemic. There will likely be a foreign policy, you know, a hotspot, at least one, if you look at history. And so we need a functioning government. Um, but I'm also sympathetic to people who are just tired of this two-party system. I would just say, like, look, um, this is a very unique uh, time, and Donald Trump has shown us how he leads in a crisis. All indications are he will not get better over time. He will only get worse, especially if he doesn't have to worry about re-election. So um, it's unlikely that the Green Party or Libertarian Party will win in November this time around. If you want to send a message, like I would strongly uh, invite you to consider sending a very strong message in 2024 or 2022 at the congressional level. But um, let's not mess around because this is not a guy who's going to uh, walk away quietly. We need to really knock him out um, for it to be a clear win. Otherwise, he's just going to um, cause trouble and make it impossible for us to get anything done as a country. And that matters. And, that, and people's lives will be affected by that. So, you know, think about that. A lot of, a lot of us, us that are talking, uh, you know, we, we're we're well off. We're, we have resources. We're going to be fine if Trump gets reelected. But there are people on the margins uh, who will dramatically be affected if their health care gets worse, if they, um, you know, th they, they, they aren't able to get a job or they aren't able to get any um, unemployment benefits or, um, you know, they, they get drafted because of some international conflict or God knows. I mean, it's just a terrible situation. So, my hope is that folks thinking about third parties, like I respect everybody's vote is sacred. You got to do what you, you want to do and you, you feel is right. But just think about um, how we transition on November 4th and whether or not Donald Trump will basically drag us through a extended uh, divorce that could take years to mend. Yeah, whatever you think about Joe Biden, he's not going to try to turn us into a banana republic. So vote against Trump, if only because everybody's vote is sacred. And there will be no Andrew Yang or anything else good if we lose our democracy. I think it's important we don't rest on our laurels, because as Tom said, you know, the data all looks really good right now. But we know like Bill Barr was on Fox News the other day promising an October surprise that's going to make the Comey thing look like an anthill. Right. So he's going to do something at the last second to try to change the trajectory of the vote. And so it's important we don't take it for granted. Every one of us needs to go out and vote to get this nightmare to end. Um, great. Thank you so much for coming on, Tom. Um, do you want to tell everybody uh, where they can find Nerds for Humanity and so forth before we sign out? Yeah, sure. Um, you can look for Nerds for Humanity on YouTube. On Twitter, I'm at Nerds for Yang. And then uh, my my other project of the people is of the people co. And uh, I think there's a lot of uh, cool stuff that we're working on that's going to potentially help invest in the infrastructure of democracy with uh, of the people. So please check it out. Awesome. Definitely recommend it. His show is really well done and very entertaining. Uh, and informative. Um, all right, great. And as we say at the end of every episode, moving forward is our gumbo. It is absolutely our gumbo. <laughs>
thanks everybody for uh, joining us for this great conversation with Rio and myself. Uh, it was a great privilege to be a guest co-host on uh, the Moving Forward Pod. If you are interested in getting more of these conversations because they are important to have, um, please check out movingforwardpod.com. Go ahead and subscribe and support this content because these types of conversations uh, are all too rare. Wow, that was absolutely perfect and beautifully said. Thank you so much, Tom. And I will make sure to send everybody to support your show at every opportunity as well. Thank you for what you're doing to help save America from itself. I appreciate that, man. Uh, we'll all pitch in and, and this nightmare will be over, hopefully in about 90 days, uh, maybe sooner. We'll see. <laughs>